0: The Lord be with you. The high point of our worship this morning is yet to come after the message. When we come to the Lord's table, after seeing the holiness and beauty and love of Jesus and acknowledging Him as the One who can give our hearts what they truly want, joy, then we come praying, He must increase and I must decrease. So to help us even now fasten on that moment, i'd like us to pray a prayer from a fifth century missionary to ireland named saint patrick would you pray men christ with me christ before me christ behind me women Christ 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 on my right christ on my left Christ in the heart of every man who thinks of me. Christ in the mouth of everyone who speaks of me. I arise today through a mighty strength, the invocation of the Trinity, through belief in the threeness, through confession of the oneness of the Creator of creation. Amen. December 23rd, 1776. A pamphlet called The Crisis by Thomas Paine is making its way through the colonies. I know that you know the first line. These are the times That try men's souls. August 6th, 2017. These are the times that try men's souls. There are still many who are willing to admit that something is wrong with the world. The ways we are cruel to each other and cannot seem to find ways to heal that. The, the, the feelings of chronic gloom that come in and out of our lives, and we cannot find ways to ultimately lift that. And each generation has this pendulum swing of trying to understand the source, the why. Why are these things happening? What's wrong with us? And there are those who say it's in the environment, and if we can just fix the outside things, the systems and structures of our world, then things would be okay. And then the pendulum swings back to the thinkers and the intelligentsia thinking, no, no, it's deeper than that. All even that's going on out there comes from in here. And the real problem is a line that goes down the middle of our hearts, as Solzhenitsyn would say. That's the line of between good and evil. It runs through every human Heart. it's outside of us no it's inside of us maybe Shakespeare was right they say maybe maybe dear Brutus the fault is not in our stars but in ourselves this is the great question it's played out for us every day on our screens we watched I recently saw it in, on a great movie Wonder Woman here's the plot plot spoiler if you haven't seen it I, I don't care I'm going to spoil the plot starts out on an island with no one but women Amazon princess warriors and everything is perfect and then a man shows up <laughs> and brings with him the violence and evil of the first world war the war to end all worlds well Diana the greatest Amazon princess warrior decides she's going to leave the island and go to London because she thinks is what's happened is the god of Aries has influenced all these events and brought this upon the planet. So it's out there, it's the environment. But by the end of the movie, Diana, Wonder Woman, is really beginning to understand it's not just the god of Aries, but indeed the problem does sit in every human heart. It's a great theological movie that's the great question when we started the series on the seven deadly sins or as a girl came up to me last night at the saturday service as we were walking in suriana miller she says what's the daily sin today <laughs> <laughs> that was great we've been doing this study on the seven daily sins because we need to think through these big questions this is a theological series and we're asking the question what's wrong with us where does sin and evil come from why does society struggle so much why do we as individuals and in our human interactions struggle so much the bible's answer and i think where most people end up christian or not is this jeremiah 17:9. the heart the heart is above all things deceitful it's beyond cure who can know it? It was Chesterton that said, the greatest evidence for God is the depravity of man. Where else would this come from? And so, we've been studying these seven deadly sins because we're saying that the toxin that is in each one of us and that explains the society's struggles and the human interactions, that toxin is called sin and sin has symptoms. And every week we've been looking at a particular symptom of sin. And today's symptom is the quiet sin, envy. When's the last time you had a discussion about being envious? It's probably the least on the totem pole. It seldom makes our conversations. But today, I think what we're gonna find is two things. One, there's probably a lot more going on with envy in our hearts than we realize. And two, we have an amazing cure for envy. So let's start with what it is. Webster's Dictionary Envy is the painful or resentful awareness of an advantage enjoyed by another, joined with a desire to possess the same advantage so the definition gives us the two sides of envy the one side of envy comes when we realize there's something out there something that another person has that we don't and we want it so there's a yearning for something more something we don't have but at the same time there's a resentment for the one who has it so you see both of those movements at once is envy Wanting something we don't have Despising the one who has it Which is why St. Thomas Aquinas When he preached this series He, he said envy is ha- as being sorrowful At another's good fortune Or if we could put it in the 21st century parlance It would be feeling bitter When someone else has it better Or my personal favorite This tops them all Frederick Here's envy Envy is the consuming desire to have everyone else Be as unsuccessful as you are that's the English definition we go to the Bible where we see a lot of envy and the Bible's definition really rounds it out and I think reveals that it goes deeper than just even yearning and resentment there's something going on in our hearts that makes envy part of the restlessness that we live with as a human being so let's go to the scriptures now we could choose a hundred different places in scriptures I mean, I could start naming off pairs of names and you'd say, Yep, envy, envy. How about this? Cain and Abel, uh, Jacob and Esau, Leah and Rachel, Joseph and his brothers, Saul and David? I mean, envy. There's a green thread of envy through the entire Bible. It goes into the New Testament. Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5 coveting a generous reputation or Paul I think rather startlingly writing to the church in Philippi saying that there are even Christian preachers who are motivated by rivalry and envy Hmm. take that one in there's a lot of envy in the scriptures but if you were to ask me Larry frame one put the frame around one story give us a picture here's what envy looks like I would choose this numbers 11. so i want you to read it a few times because in a moment i'm going to ask you to read it with passion you're going to act it out so read it a few times let me give you the background story so by this time numbers the exodus has happened remember israel was in egypt in dire cruel oppression They were the slave labor force of Egypt. For 400 years, they're crying out to God and finally God sends them a savior named Moses. And Moses comes and he's given God's power to do miracles and power. And uh, even the last one, the death of the firstborn in Egypt, sends Egypt saying, get out of here and we'll even pay you to leave. And they get Israel out of Egypt, but they walk into the death, the Red Sea, and the pharaoh's army's coming and they walk through on dry ground amazing power and deliverance a few weeks then into the desert they're hungry they're hungry they cry out to God again there's no food anywhere they cry out God save us and so God sends them manna now what's manna the hebrew word for manna is what is it no one really knows Some think it was the coriander seed, which could be made into mush and made into wafers and breads. Tasted like honey, it says, flakes of honey. For our purposes this morning, we'll call it Honey Bunches of Oats. We'll call it cereal. And so they're weeks into this amazing rescue, and they have cereal for breakfast, cereal for lunch, and cereal for dinner. Week after week, month after month it's honey bunches of oats and now we come to numbers 11. would you read it with the best grumpiness you can muster (laughs) cereal after cereal the rabble with them began to crave other food and again the israelites started (laughs) it's like you were there that was so good we should do that more often normally the, the, the New International Version, which is the Bibles in the back pew, it's what we use for our public readings. It's, it's like one of the best English translations of the Hebrew ever. It's usually very good. But I have to tell you, it's a little weak in verse 6. When it says, We have lost our appetite, that's weak. It literally says, Our souls, nephesh, our souls are dying. If I have to eat another bite of cereal, I am going to die. That's the translation. Now, what is envy? Envy is saying that what is given, even though it comes from the doorstep of heaven, what is given, Is no longer good enough Whatever is in front of you You find fault And you say back there 20 years ago, it was so good Out there if I just had something in my future I could look forward to Over there if I just had something that they have Back there out there over there If I have to eat another bite of cereal, I'm gonna die Envy is when what is given is no longer good enough. Now, you have to admit it's kind of humorous, right? It is. I mean, they're actually saying, I would rather go back to Egypt and become a slave again than eat another bite of cereal. Now, it's true. They probably had that cucumber salad. But as a slave, I mean... It's one thing to have good food and have no freedom. It's another thing for them to have their freedom and have no food. But they did have food. But what was given was no longer good enough. It's rather humorous, right? That they're so despondent that they would want to go back to Egypt and become a slave because their current circumstances are so unbearable. It's rather humorous to think about it in our day and age, this idea of envy. When you see it that way, what's given is not good enough. Came across a great article. We we're going to cross these in the newspapers about envy. This one is an is a article. It's entitled Picky, Picky, Picky by John Tierney. It's reprinted about every five years in the New York Times. It starts out with John Tierney mentioning this. of the households in Manhattan are people living alone. 48%, that's nearly twice the national average. So John Tierney is wondering why? What is it about Manhattan that nearly half of every house has one person living in it? He writes, as their mothers will gladly attest, a lot of these single New Yorkers are the sort who shouldn't have any trouble finding a partner. Manhattan is a magnet for people with intelligence, talent, money, and good looks, qualities that have traditionally ensured success in the mating game. So, why do they have so much trouble? My theory, developed in years of field research and being tested in a personal ad survey, is that single New Yorkers are singularly picky. They are afflicted with what I call the flaw-omatic. You can think of the flaw omatic as an inner voice, a little whirring device inside the brain that instantly spots a fatal flaw in any potential mate. And then he goes on to give a situation. One Manhattan man talking to the other about a date. Well, it started out great, the young man began. She opened the door. She looked fantastic. Beautiful face, great body, nice smile. Everything was going fine until she turned around. He paused ominously and shook his head. Chuck, he said sadly. She had dirty elbows. And that was that. The guy went through the rest of the date, but he knew the relationship was doomed. Watching him, my first instinct was to suggest that there might be some way for the two of them to work this out. Maybe some couples therapy, or a little soap and water. But then... I realized that it wouldn't matter. He'd just find something else. He sounded too much like the single friends I'd been hearing in New York explain why their relationships are not working. She mispronounced Goethe, the German poet. Or, if she would just lose seven pounds. Or, sure, he's a partner, but it's not a big firm. Or, he wears these short black socks and when he sits down and crosses his leg, I can see his bare shin. Now, these New Yorkers all sound like the victims of their flaw omatics, although none of them would admit to having one. No one ever does. During my years living alone, I always knew my own requirements and women were perfectly reasonable. All I wanted was a nice novelist astronaut with a background in fashion modeling. <laughs> but I could see that it was the others that needed help. Picky, picky, picky. When one is one is given is not good enough. There's something very important here we need to capture. We've said we're preaching this series to help us think well and better. We need to understand how sin works in our lives and in society. Here's how it works. Adam and Eve, our parents, were placed in a garden where everything was perfect. And then one day a serpent comes. And he says, how's it going? They said, fine. They said, have you eaten from this tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? No, we haven't eaten from that tree. The master said not to eat from that tree, but every other tree is ours. The serpent says, well, do you know why he said that? Because that tree is better than all the other trees combined. And suddenly our parents imagined a better world and they chose their better world and we've been choosing our own better worlds ever since that is how sin works when what is given is not good enough so how deadly does it get what does this sin of envy wreck in our lives three things first, envy diminishes the self. I mean, think about it. Of all the other daily sins, (laughs) deadly sins, envy is the only one that has absolutely no pleasure involved. You don't get anything from envy. Not a moment's pleasure. Not an ounce of joy. There's misery. I mean, when all of your Uh, waking life is consumed with envy you are wanting what you can't have and you are despising those who have it and that is a miserable way to live that's why the color of envy is green it's never ripe you never get it that's hard but that is why some of us cannot stand to look in the mirror That's why some of us cannot stand our career. That's why some of us keep having midlife crisis after midlife crisis after midlife crisis and we're not even 30. We want what we cannot have. Picky, picky, picky. And our lives are diminished. It diminishes community. Paul says that a christian is one who mourns with those who mourn and rejoices with those who rejoice But envy flips it on his head and says That no you should mourn when when they rejoice And you should rejoice when they mourn and everything is backwards and it turns a person into a critically negative spirited person Samuel rogers a 19th century british poet tells about this incident. There was a meeting house of commons and they were talking about a young duke who had everything wealth looks intelligence everything he was absent from the meeting they were singing his praises about how well he was finally in a pause samuel rogers just felt he had to interject but thank god he has bad teeth diminishes community this is why some of us are not married this is why some of us are married and it's absolute misery this is why some of us have very few friends because who wants to be around a negative critical spirit this is why some of us will not join a church picky 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 it diminishes the self It diminishes community and it diminishes our relationship with God. I mean, think about it. Let's go deep here. What is it that we envy most in people? It's usually their intelligence, their looks, their abilities. And probably their abilities that have gotten them a good standard of living. All those things we envy. But where do those things come from? They come from God. I mean, our very next breath is from God. It's not guaranteed. We depend on God for everything. And the person you envy depends on God for everything. And so when we despise what they have, what are we really doing? What's going on? We are despising God's sovereignty and his choices in giving that to them and in not giving it to us. That is a very dangerous wrench in our relationship with God. The movie Amadeus is a classic example of it. Salariani is an average musician but he's a good enough musician to know a great musician and therefore he gets to know Mozart Mozart and despises not only the, the way that Mozart is able to produce the music that he has produced but even his lifestyle and Mozart seems to have no appreciation for his gift and it drives Siri, Siri. Vivi I just can't say his word his name I'm sorry shout it out Salieri. So whatever I say in the future, it's that. (laughs) Salieri is despising Mozart. But notice where it goes. It goes to God. Salieri says, from now on, he's praying here, by the way. From now on, we, God, you and I are enemies. Because you choose for your instrument a boastful, lustful, smutty, infantile boy and give me for my reward only the ability to recognize the incarnation. Because you are unjust, unfair, unkind, I will block you. I swear it. I will hinder and harm your creature on earth. As far as I am able, I will ruin your incarnation. And then he picks up a crucifix and throws it into the fire wow envy does damage to our relationship with God because we're ultimately questioning God's sovereignty that is the root of envy the root of envy is we simply don't trust God farther than we can throw him We do not believe he has our best interests at heart by the way he's blessing them and withholding from me. That is the root of envy. All I can see is manna. God, what you're giving is not good enough. You know that's a lie, right? That's a lie. When Israel makes it through the desert, comes out on the other side, God reminds them in Deuteronomy chapter 8, I brought you through the desert with the manna and your feet never swelled. Now, what does that mean? Your feet never swelled. We, I think we read it at first and said, well, they walked a lot, so they had sore feet. No! In the ancient world, you could tell a person's diet was poor by the way their feet swelled. For instance, if you had scurvy, lack of vitamin C, your feet swal- swelled. Your diet was indicated by your feet and their swollenness. And God's reminding Israel, you said that manna was not good enough. That manna was good enough. You've probably never had a better diet. You had a 40 year camping trip and you never suffered nutritionally. It was good enough. The reason you felt it wasn't good enough is because you didn't believe it was good enough. And you started listening to your own preaching and you decided in your mind, your perceptions became your reality and you decided it wasn't good enough and that's when you became sick and dry. Your choice. It was good enough. What's the antidote to envy? When we get into that place, When we're questioning the goodness of God What's the antidote? I want to go to another desert story John the Baptist The wild man in the desert And he made different choices with his manna Let's learn from him The background to this I'll read this in a moment The background here is this John is baptizing and preaching out in the desert His disciples are coming up to him And they say, John, John That guy, you baptized a few weeks back, he claimed to be the Messiah, Jesus. Well, everyone's going to him now. Everyone's going to his disciples to be baptized. Even your disciples are leaving you and going to him. Now, right there is a situation ripe for envy. John the Baptist could have said, yeah, I know, I don't get it. He doesn't even use prepositions well. What did he say when God was asking even for his ministry? What did he say? A person can receive only what is given them from heaven, given, given. You yourselves can testify that I said I am not the Messiah, but I am sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy, that joy is mine, and it is now complete. He must become greater. I must become less. What are the two antidotes to envy? The first one is gratitude, the second one is groom. First, when you say, I get, the second one says, Larry, you're gonna have to explain that, I will. Gratitude, only what is given from heaven. John understood and acknowledged that his life was given him from heaven, and to acknowledge something as given is to be grateful. And John was grateful, now, understand, His manna was hard. It was worse than honey bunches of oats. It was honey and locusts. I mean, he lived in the desert. He was a wild man. He did not have a membership to the sauna or the theater. He wore camel skins and a leather belt. And his calling, first of all, was to really personally attack his pastors and then personally attack his government leaders, which ultimately cost him his head. But he was called by God to question Herod about his immorality and his corruption. And to his pastors, well, here was the liturgy to his pastors. You are a brood of vipers. We are a brood indeed. That was the message. He was called to live single. No wife, no children. He was isolated. I mean, Jesus was John's first cousin, but when Jesus walked up to John, John doesn't recognize him. Why? Because he was a monk in the desert. We all think, oh, my life. Cereal after cereal, spoonful after spoonful, John's manna. Locusts and honey. But he says, I can receive only what is given from heaven you see gratitude for what is given changes your perspective on what you have and what you don't have it helps you walk that line between need and want when you fight for a perspective of gratitude it changes your entire approach to life even when it's hard even when there's so much in your life that hurts so much in, uh, that's not in your life that you want but if you can just focus and say what is given the kingdom of god i pledge allegiance to the king he is in control whatever is given i accept as from heaven that perspective and fighting for that perspective chases envy from your heart do you practice thanksgiving should be more than one day a year right Do you journal and every day think of three things that you're thankful for? You're looking for God in your life, even when it's hard, even when it's manna again. Do you sit with your family, your spouse, your kids at the table and say, kids, tell me something today that was a great thing and tell me something today that was a hard thing and we're gonna be grateful for it all. Do you do that? Do you plant gratitude in your kids? gratitude changes perspective that's the first antidote to envy the second is groom and it comes from the metaphor right john the baptist sees himself as the best man to jesus now understand a jewish wedding was a week long event and the uh, best man He was in charge of a lot in a Jewish wedding. He would help with the guest list. He would manage the daily activities and get people where they needed to be. But his primary responsibility was at the end, on the last night of the wedding, when the bride would be in the tent waiting and the Shoshbin, the best man, would stand at the entrance to the tent and make sure in the dark that no one else could come in but the one voice, the voice of the groom the voice of his friend. And when he hears that voice, he allows the groom to come and know his joy. John the Baptist says, my joy is full when I know that Jesus' joy is ripe. What is the joy of Jesus? The joy of Jesus is this. We talk about it every Easter when Danielle, Nick, and I preach. This is the joy. This is the joy that if it gets into your heart, Your heart becomes fuller and fuller. You can't help but pray, he must increase, I must decrease, and there's no room left for envy. What is that joy? That joy is this. Joy means that life conquers death. Joy means that mercy triumphs over judgment. Joy means that all sins are forgiven, soaked up in a giant white towel, and you are clean and free. Joy means... That even though something bad happens to you here on this planet, it's not the last word on your life. Joy means that even if something bad happens to you on this planet, and you die the worst day of your life, it's an upgrade. Joy means that at the end of time, there's a voice, a call, and you will be reunited with your dead body. And on that day, you will do the hokey pokey on your grave. And that's what it's all about. And joy means every day now You practice resurrection. And when that fills your heart, envy. What is there to be envious of? He must increase, I must decrease. And when that joy fills your heart, it's good, it's enough. Some of you, that's hard to say, I know. Some of you walked in, your, your life, you, you'd be camping with John the Baptist. But if you fight for gratitude, acknowledging what you have, but especially seeing all that you have in Jesus Christ, that's a joy that is in the process of being made complete.